What do you do for Christmas when the best of earthly blessings are behind you? Your, your kids all, are all grown up, your, your career is over, your health is failing, you're invalid even, and perhaps you're in a nursing home. Your best years, your sweetest years are long gone, your best Christmases are in the past, you're too old to enjoy a Christmas trip out of town somewhere, you don't need new clothes because you don't really go anywhere anymore. A new car does you no good because you can't drive anymore. A Christmas meal, your your taste buds barely work. Your grandkids are just out of college. They're getting on with their lives. What's there to look forward to during Christmas? For many of us, for most of us, all of us, we're not there yet. But for many of us, one day we will be. I was thinking about that. For me, as, as, as I'm about to enter into eternity, when I'm about to, as I'm about to face my maker, what I think I will want most is a greater faith in Jesus Christ. I will, I will want to know for sure that Christ is all that scripture says he is. When I get that old, if I get to that day, I, I want to be a play, I want to be in a place where all my hope is in Jesus. I want to be certain that all the promises in Christ are yes and amen. And when I'm that age on Christmas Day, my hope is that Christmas Day will still be the happiest day of my year. Because it will be the day when I'm most reminded of the reality of all that Christ's birth has brought to my life. This is a passage that I hope will help your Christmas be the happiest day of the year uh, when you're young and if and when you get to that age too, when you're old. In today's passage, we meet two people, an old priest and an old widow, who experience the greatest joy of their lives at the very end of their lives. And so today's a sermon that I hope will bless you today but also in many years ahead where, if you don't remember the sermon, and I'm I'm sure you won't, you will at least remember this passage, a passage that you can go to to give you hope that Jesus is all that the Word says He is. Let me read the passage for you this morning. Luke chapter 2, 21 to 38. Luke Luke chapter 2, 21 through 38. When eight days, when, when eight days were fulfilled, so that they could circumcise him, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days for their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, 
Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were marveling at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, and the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and and continued to speak of him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of of Jerusalem. To help you understand the passage before us this morning, we have to understand the wider context of the Gospel of Luke because context really matters for any sort of story, any sort of presentation of history. I was reminded of that uh, 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 last night. Or last night I was watching um, The Darkest Hour, uh, a movie about Winston Churchill. And uh, sometime before last night, I, I watched Dunkirk, you know, and Dunkirk is about uh, uh, these soldiers on an island, and they're rescued by all these private boats from private citizens in Britain, and they take them across the ocean. I heard a lot of good things about it, and uh, people said they loved it, and then I watched it, and I was kind of like, uh, that wasn't that good. What's so special about that? Until I realized yesterday when I was watching The Darkest Hour that all of the British army was on the beach, and if the Germans had wiped out that army, Britain would have no army, and Britain would be conquered by Hitler. And then the light bulb went on, and I said, oh, that's why Dunkirk was so awesome and special. I needed that context, and and we need the context of Luke to really appreciate our passage this morning. What is the thesis of the entire Gospel of Luke? Yes, the Gospels are about Jesus, but all four Gospels focus on something particular about him. For example, the Gospel of John focuses on the deity, deity of Jesus, The Gospel of Matthew proves that uh, Jesus is the Messiah of of Israel. The Gospel of Luke's emphasis is that, listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. He is the fulfillment of history, theology, God's salvation plan, all prophecy. Jesus comes into the world in one condition, and he leaves the world in an entirely different condition that has been dramatically altered. And therefore, if Jesus has changed the world, those who know him today should be changed as well. If Jesus is the fulfillment of everything, then he should be impacting you at the deepest level of your person. And so in chapter 1, the, the first incident re, that Luke records is the, is the angelic announcement to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they would give birth to John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner. And to appreciate the beginning of Luke, 
you need the context of, of the Old Testament. Because Luke picks up where Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, left off 400 years before Jesus was born. And Malachi, the last words that, he, that, he, that, 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 God, that God says to him are these. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And so after Malachi penned those words, for the next 400 years, there was total silence from God in Israel. There were no prophets. There was no revelation from God. Not a single word until Luke chapter 1 when an angel of the Lord says to Zechariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him named John. In other words, the angel is saying, implying, Hey, remember the last words of Malachi? 400 years later, God picks up from exactly where he last left off. John the Baptist will be a new Elijah. He will be a a, a Nazarite according to chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. The angel says to Zechariah, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink. That's a a mark of of a Nazarite. And if you remember, Samuel was a Nazarite in 1 Samuel. Remember Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1.11 when she made this Nazarite vow for the son that she so desperately wanted? She said, God, if you give me a boy, quote, I will give him to, to Yahweh all the days of, a, of his life, and a razor shall never come to his head. That's another mark of a Nazarite. So what? John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Samuel was a Nazarite. What does Samuel have to do with John the Baptist besides the fact that we're both Nazarites? Well, who else was Samuel? Samuel was a forerunner of David. So when you see Samuel, you know who is coming after him. David. So when you see John the Baptist, who do you know is coming after him? A greater David. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophets. Next in chapter 1, an angel visits Mary. The angel is Gabriel. And when was the last time we saw Gabriel in the Bible? In the book of Daniel. And there in Daniel, God told him that a Messiah was coming whose kingdom would have no end. And then he appears to to Mary. And what does he say in, in verses 31 to 33? Verse 32, he will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. He said that to Daniel. Eschatology is being realized. Gabriel says, hey, remember what, what I said to Daniel about this kingdom and a king? Jesus is the fulfillment of all eschatology. And then you have these words in verse 32, Son son of the Most High. Uh, Melchizedek said that to Abraham. You have uh, allusions to 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant, the promise of a king from David's throne. You have uh, Gabriel's initial words in verse 30, Do not be afraid. And God said that to Abraham and Daniel just before God was going to powerfully intervene in the situation. 
Verse 32, uh, 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 the, the angel Gabriel says to Jesus, he will be great. He, he said that about John the Baptist in uh, verse 15, but, but Jesus will be greater on a whole other level. When John the Baptist was born, Elizabeth was a barren woman her, in, in her old age. But Mary is a virgin who will bear Jesus. This is a miracle on a much higher level. Jesus is the fulfillment of all theology. His birth from a virgin was, was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus is the pinnacle of, of history. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It happened in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. Rome's greatest Caesar, Augustus, is a pawn in the hand of God. God is moving Caesar around to providentially make certain that Jesus can be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5.2. And then in verse 11, Luke says, or the angels says to, to, to Mary, or to the, to, the, to the shepherds, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those words Savior and Lord were used to describe Caesar. And, and, and so the angel's point is that Jesus is the real king. Jesus is the Caesar of Caesars. History revolves around him, not world leaders and powerful kings. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. You see that word over and over. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. The days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Chapter 1, verse 1 inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Chapter 2.22, when the days of the cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled. Verse 21, when eight days were fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. Galatians 4.4 said, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. And and the Gospel of Luke is, is, is explaining how Jesus embodies the fullness of everything. Time and, and history and God's salvation plan and theology and prophecy. He's changing everything in life and therefore needs to change your life. The beginning of Luke chapter 2 records the birth of Jesus. And back in chapter 1, verse 31, the angel Gabriel told Mary to name her son Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew name Yeshua. It means that God saves or, or God is salvation. Jesus is the embodiment of salvation. All of salvation for every sinner God has chosen to save rests on the shoulders of Jesus. And so in the passage before us this morning, Luke now proves that Jesus is is salvation for the world through the validation and testimony of Israel. What do I mean by that? In order for the world to believe that Jesus is the pinnacle of history, the fulfiller of everything, the one who brings salvation, the nation Israel must be the first people to confirm that fact. Because before Jesus is anything to the world, he is first the son of David, and the Messiah of, of Israel. He must be first the Messiah of, of Israel before he can be the King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, Israel must validate their Messiah to us, to the rest of the world, before the rest of the world can believe that reality. 
You see, the, the Old, Old Testament always taught that Israel would be the conduit of salvation for the rest of the world. In Genesis 12, 3, God promised Abraham and said to him, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. And so if Israel is the conduit of salvation for the world, and since Jesus is the primary conduit of that salvation, Israel matters. Israel needs to first validate this conduit of salvation. They must first testify to the rest of the world and say, hey, this one is the one who will save Israel, and if if he can save Israel, he can save the rest of you. If we Jews hope in him, you can hope in him as well. But this poses a big problem. Why? Because when Jesus is born, almost all of Israel is spiritually dead. Who's going to validate him? The Pharisees? The Sadducees? Who's going to validate Jesus? They're wicked. They're corrupt. John the Baptist later calls them a brood of vipers. That means they're not qualified to validate Jesus for us. Then who will? In this morning's passage, God will validate Jesus through two people specifically, an old man named Simeon and an old widow named Anna who represent Israel for God. And with that validation by these two representing true Israel, God intends to grow our faith and hope in the child Christmas celebrates. Point number one, found in verses 21 to 35 of chapter 2, a Christmas gift for an old man. Our Heavenly Father is the sovereign Lord of the universe, but He's also the loving Father of the humble and the meek. He is a God of stark contrast that way. I love uh, Michael's prayer that providentially kind of connected to this text. He Michael talked about in his prayer, God first appear on a, on a mountain with thunder and lightning. The people were, were frightened, two million people, and, and then he appears in a baby. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, captures God's contrasting attributes very well when it says, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. What? What What did that mean? What is that? That's incomprehensible. Then there's a semicolon. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Oh, I I get that. I understand that. God is otherworldly, unlike us in every way, incomprehensible, but he's also with us here below, tenderly caring for our every need, encouraging our hearts in the bleakest of times. God will love us when we're in our last years, in a nursing home when no one visits us just as much as he loves us in the prime of our lives. 
And Jesus will always be the greatest proof of that love. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of history, theology, scripture, according to God's will, but the fulfillment of God's plan happens through, through real people, with real problems, with real lives. God brings about the incomprehensible in the most personal of ways. And God didn't have to do it that way, but he chose to. Yes, John the Baptist was prophesied 400 years earlier in Malachi, but his birth is the answer to a real prayer by real people struggling. When the angel appeared to Zechariah, he said this to chapter, in chapter 1, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. In that society, to not have a child was a an especially difficult hardship. And God saw that personal pain. And as he saves the world, he blesses suffering individuals. He's high, he's low. He says to the barren couple in chapter 1, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness. Yes, rejoicing in heaven, but you, Zechariah and Elizabeth, you too will be happy as well. God is going to turn individual lines around in the same way he turns the entire universe around. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna in today's passage, they become a tiny microcosm of God's goodness to the entire universe. God, yes, he's going to do something spectacular in history with eternal ramifications, but not at the expense of individuals. The mighty and spectacular will intersect with the lowly and personal, and that's what you're going to see in the following verses with respect to the life of Simeon and Anna. Look at verse 21. Our passage of focus this morning begins here, and Luke says, And when eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise him, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. According to the law in Leviticus 12, 2 and 3, all male children were circumcised on the eighth day. Leviticus 12, 2 and 3 says this, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then shall she be unclean or ceremonially unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Now on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. However, the focus of the verse, of verse 21, is really on the name given to the baby. His name was called Jesus. Why is that important? Because what does Jesus' name mean? It means God saves. God is salvation. Jesus is the Savior. He's going to save his people. But can he really do that? Can he really save? Is he really the fulfillment of all salvation decreed in eternity past? Is he really the fulfillment of prophecy and and promises? How can we be so sure? He's just a little baby. And so verses 22 and following will prove that. Yes. He can live up to his name. And God says, here are two of my chosen representatives of Israel, chosen by me, who will validate Jesus to you, who will validate Jesus to the world. And the point, again, is that if Jesus is the hope of Israel, he can be the hope for the world. Remember, in the first century, not a single prophecy of Jesus has been fulfilled yet. 
So if they can hope in Jesus, then we who after Jesus has born, lived, died, resurrected, resurrected, New Testament churches everywhere, we can hope in Jesus too. Their faith and their hope in Christ must strengthen our faith in Christ. This is the purpose of the passage. In verse 22, Mary and Joseph, they complete the purification process we read about in Leviticus 12. And so the way it worked is the first seven days she was unclean, and then for another 30, 33 days, another 33 days, she needed to stay away from the temple. Leviticus 12.4 says, Then she shall remain in the blood of her cleansing for 33 days. She shall not touch any holy thing, and she shall not enter the sanctuary until the days of her cleansing are fit fulfilled. So 40 days after Jesus' birth, he is brought up to Jerusalem in verse 22. Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem, but since Jerusalem was on a mountain, when you were going to Jerusalem in the temple, you always say where we're going up to Jerusalem from, from wherever direction you were coming from. And, and the, the point of these, these, these four opening verses is that not only does Jesus fulfill every detail of the law, so do his parents. Jesus' parents are obedient Israelites. Look at the end of this passage, verse 39. Uh, And when they, Mary and Joseph, had finished everything, what? According to the law of the Lord. Mary and Joseph are part of the righteous remnant of Israel. As corrupt as Israel was in Old Testament history, there has always been a remnant, a minority of faithful Israelites. Remember I lay Elijah on, on Mount Carmel in this contest between false prophets? He said afterwards, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left. I'm the only faithful, the faithful Jew here. And, and God corrected him and said, no, there's, there's 7,000 left. 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Mary and Joseph are part of that righteous remnant. In verse 24, Mary needed to give a purification offering according to Leviticus 12 after 40 days. You had two options if you wanted to give this purification offering. You could give a, a lamb for a, for a sin offering and a, for, a, I'm sorry, you could give a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon for a sin offering. But if you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, you could give two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for the burnt offering and one for the sin offering. And look at verse 24. They give two young pigeons. That indicates they were poor. That indicates that this event happened before the Magi came from the east. Because when the Magi gave them gifts, if Mary and Joseph would have received them, they would have had enough money to afford a lamb for their son. But they didn't. We can assume that Herod the Great, he doesn't know about them, about them yet. Because if he did, they wouldn't be in Jerusalem. Herod lives ten feet away on, on, on Fort Antonia. And paired with this purification offering in verse 24 is the dedication of the, verse, of the firstborn in verse 23. 
And as it is written in the law of the Lord, verse 23 says, Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. According to Exodus 13, every firstborn needed to be offered to God and redeemed because this was a symbol of God passing over the firstborn of the Jewish families and killing all the firstborn Egyptian children. The firstborn were particularly God's own possession. And so Mary and Joseph says, this is our firstborn. We're dedicating him to you. This is the child that you own. But the But the name firstborn has an even deeper significance to that. It's more than just birth order. It's more than just the symbolism of Exodus. Back in chapter 2, verse 7, Luke said this in particular about Mary's birth. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. The, The idea behind firstborn is is really not just your birth order. The idea is really a title. It, it means um, the most important one, uh, the preeminent one. It's the status of having the highest position. In Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, God says this of David. He says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And David was the youngest son of his family. So Jesus is the firstborn of the line of David, according to Luke. He is the new David. He represents all of humanity. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. But Jesus first needs to be authenticated as the firstborn firstborn by a valid representative of Israel in the temple in God's house. He, Jesus, needs an official Jewish seal of approval, and we meet the firstborn representative of true Israel in verse 25. And behold, verse 25 says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Luke gives the credentials of this first witness to show that he is an authentic representative of true Judaism. Simeon epitomizes Jewish piety in Israel's most holy place. He represents, along with Anna, the best of Old Testament faith, validating baby Jesus. Who was Simeon? He was righteous and devout. Simeon was, verse 25, waiting for the comfort of Israel. That phrase, that lingo is used throughout Isaiah. Isaiah 41 says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 49, 13 says, For Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 51, 3 says, Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And so Simeon knows that the comfort of Israel in Isaiah is the virgin child of Isaiah 7.14. He knows that the comfort of Israel is the wonderful counselor and mighty God, Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9. Simeon knows that the comfort of Israel is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Simeon is waiting for that comforter. He's righteous. He's devout. He's waiting for Isaiah's comforter. This is a, a validated and official representative of Israel to tell you that Jesus is all that Scripture says he is. You can trust him. He can be your hope because he was Simeon's hope. 
He's another thing. Verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the Holy Spirit did two things for Simeon in verse 26 and in, in verses 26 and 27. First, the Holy Spirit in verse 26 revealed to Simeon that before he would die, he would see the Christ. Verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. God was going to give Simeon his greatest Christmas gift ever. I was reading a random sports article last night. I guess I was working on my sermon, but I, I was doing other things too. I about a football player. Um, he started, he won. The reporter asked him, is, is this the best Christmas gift you ever had? play so well. And he said, well, when I was 12, year, 12 years old, I, I got a Christmas tree. It's kind of a toss-up. Simeon is going get, to get to see the Messiah. Merry Christmas, Simeon. At the end of his life. He's a very old man, according to verses 29 and 30. He's ready to die, but he's still waiting for the Messiah to see with his own eyes. The happiest day of his life is going to be at the very end of his life. The best is yet to come. I mean, when you, when you think about your old age, do you think, wow, when I'm 90, those are going to be the best years. I can't wait. For Simeon, yes. The Holy Spirit does something else in verse 27. The Spirit identifies just which baby is the Christ. Verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the customs of the law, the Spirit said, Simeon, this is the baby. These are the parents. And if Simeon is, is the one receiving the firstborn dedication, Mary is handing baby Jesus to him, and he says, this is the firstborn. This is the firstborn of all firstborns. He is, as Colossians 1.15 says, the image of the invisible, the firstborn of, over all creation. This is the preeminent one. This is the exalted one. And you've you got to love verse 28. And he took him into his arms and blessed God. Imagine the fullness of satisfaction that Simeon felt. This old, old man, as he, as he saw, as he held baby Jesus for the first time. Matthew Henry wrote, he embraced him with the greatest affection imaginable. Laid him in, in his bosom as near his heart as he could, which was full of joy as it could hold. See, he was only promised to see Christ. But he's given more than he promised. He gets to hold the baby. All of salvation is in Simeon's arms. The climax of history and prophecy is being held by Simeon. He's clutching eternal life against his, his upper body. He, he is cradling incarnate forgiveness. This is the greatest day of Simeon's life. And listen, Simeon struggled with doubts. It, this is hard to believe. Luke recognizes this is very hard to believe, that this baby is the savior of, of every sinner who believes in him. 
he, he makes the point. Remember in Luke 1 when he, when he told Zechariah about John the Baptist? Go to Luke 1. Go to Luke 1. The, tells them this awesome prophecy. God has not spoken for 400 years. He speaks to Zechariah. What's, what's uh, Zechariah's response in verse 18? How will I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advancing years. It's not exactly the response the angel was looking for. So the angel answers him and said, Hey, you knucklehead, I am Gabriel, who stands before God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news, but you're such a knucklehead. Behold, you shall be silent. I'm not going to let you talk until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. This is hard to believe. This is difficult. But for Simeon, all doubt is over. He's holding the realized and fulfilled promises of God in his very arms. Jesus is the best Christmas present you could ever receive. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you believe that he rose again from the dead, you can have Jesus too. You can hold him too. When we're at the door of death in 30 years, 40 years, 10 years, Christmas can be the happiest day of the year because it reminds you that you're closer to Jesus than you've ever been. Yeah, you young 20-year-olds, you go to your trips to New York and you run your marathons. But I'm closer to the front of the line to see Jesus. I'm closer. I'm closer than you are. But there is a condition for that joy in our old age. There's a condition. The joy of Christ in our golden years can only be had if we've been waiting for him all our lives. See, the only reason that Simeon is rejoicing is because he's been waiting for Jesus all of his life. He has been hoping in in the Messiah all of his life. You wait for the person you love, don't you? You wait for the person you love. When I was dating my wife, I would text her. I would leave a message. I would wait for her response. I would wait. And an hour felt like a day. A day felt like a week. And sometimes in the beginning, she wouldn't call me back. She wouldn't text me. And I would say, I'm being ghosted here two days, and then three days, and I'm, I'm waiting every minute. I go to bed, I wake up, and I'm, I'm looking at look the phone. Oh, no text. Oh my, it's over. And she called me. I pretend I wasn't waiting. Oh, hey, what's going on? See, so you, you wait for the person you love. You wait longest for the person you love, don't you? for the most important things, for the most important people, you'll wait years. A couple weeks ago, I read of a mother whose daughter was kidnapped. And it's 20 years later. It's 30 years later. And the paper is saying, she's still waiting. She's still waiting. And you're thinking to yourself, 
lady, she's gone. She's not coming back. But for the person you love, you wait the longest for. Who are you waiting for, brothers and sisters? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the circumstances of your life to change? That, that's okay, as long as you're waiting for Christ more. Are, are you hoping in a job promotion? That's okay, as long as you're waiting for Christ even more. See, heaven is, is only a consolation in your old age when you've been waiting for heaven when you were young. Who are you waiting for? How long are you willing to wait? See, in Simeon, Simeon read Psalm 42. <laughs> Last Sunday, the, the psalmist is, what, he's separated from the temple. He's separated from God. Simeon feels that uh, all of Judaism is corrupt. And Psalm 42 says, wait. Wait for the Lord, for you shall praise him. And now, Simeon, the wait is over. And joy takes over. Joy floods his heart. And he, and he recites a hymn of praise in verses 29 to 32. And the hymn is known in the Latin, Nunc Dimittis, Now I can depart. It means. Now he can die in peace. He blessed God. Verse 29 says, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. I can die in peace now. I can die in joy. You've given this old man the greatest gift anybody could give. How does Simeon know for sure? Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Is, is the name Jesus the right name for this baby? Simon says, yes. He, this baby will live up to his name. He will save. He says this, you're releasing your slave in peace according to your word. You told me by the Spirit. You, you told me in Isaiah. You told me in Genesis. You told me in the Psalms. You told me in, 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 in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And now my eyes have seen your salvation. But he, he would have never recognized Jesus in the first place unless he had first seen him in the Word of God. He would have never recognized Jesus unless he had first seen him in the book of Isaiah. The Spirit would have never led him to Jesus the baby in the, in the flesh unless the Spirit had first led him to Jesus in the Bible. Those who will see Jesus in heaven tomorrow are only those who see Jesus in Scripture today. Do you see him in the Word of God? Because if you don't see and love Jesus in, in the Word today, you won't see and love Jesus in heaven. It doesn't work that way. You can't live 85, 95 years ignoring Jesus, boring Jesus, and then expect to be happy about Christ when you're about to die. It doesn't work that way. When I first got saved, I was my friend and his girlfriend, and I shared the gospel with both of them, and my friend was, he didn't care, he's like, whatever. But his girlfriend, she was shaken up. She said, oh, oh George, I'm just, 
I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to live my life. And at the end, I'll believe in Jesus. At the very end, I'll, I'll believe in him then. They say, hey, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You know, deathbed conversions are very rare. How do I know that? I can't be sure, but there's been studies where people made deathbed professions of faith, and then they don't die. They live a little longer. Many of them don't act on that faith. Never, many of them don't ever continue to, to live in that faith. Believe in him today. Believe in him today. This hasn't been done in secret, verse 31. But this is the salvation, verse 31, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples. This hasn't been done in secret. You can read about it in the Old Testament. This is public knowledge. 3,500 years. The Bible is the best-selling book in the world. You can go to Israel and see all this evidence that matches up verbatim with, the, with these 3,500-year-old scriptures. I've been studying the Bible for 20 years, 25 years. and watching those videos about Israel, and I'm like, I'm just amazed. There's the building. There's the mountain. There's first kings. It's not a secret. You don't have to wait until heaven to be certain about Jesus. You can be certain just by reading his word. Simeon had the Old Testament. You have the Old Testament and you have Simeon in the New Testament. What does Simeon officially say on behalf of Israel? What does he testify to us? Verse 32, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Simeon praises God, and then in verses 33 to 35, he has a word for Mary. He has a word for Mary, and this is the word that he says. Before that, verse 33, his father and mother... They're marveling at the things which were being said about him. Yes, before this section, when the shepherds came to Mary and Joseph, and they tell them about the angels who were, were, who were exclaiming, glory to God in the highest. Yes, they were marveling then, but, but they were shepherds. And I'm sure they respected shepherds, but this is another level. This is the priest. This is a prophetess. And they're marveling. And Simeon says this, Behold, Mary, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, and the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus will divide people into two groups. Those who receive him, and those who reject him. He is a litmus test to those who believe and to those who do not believe. And those who do not believe, they will take a sword and they will ram it into to Mary's heart. The word for sword here is a broad sword, a two-edged sword, a large sword. Simeon is saying, this beautiful baby born to die. Beautiful baby, 
going to hang on, hang on a cross one day, Aaron. For those who believe, by those who disbelieve. Do you believe or not? All you have to do to receive Christ, you just have to believe in him. You just have to trust in him. That's it. You just believe. And God takes his baby and he places him in the arms of your heart. Number two, a Christmas gift for an old widow, and this will be, this will be short, verses 36 to 38. According to Deuteronomy 19, you need two witnesses. You need two or three witnesses. One isn't enough. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, At the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. Jesus fulfills the law in every detail. And that means you need another bona fide representative of Israel to confirm to the rest of us that this indeed is the Messiah. And so if Jesus is, is Simeon's hope, if, if Jesus is this prophetess's hope, then he can be the hope for the rest of us because they represent true Israel. Who is this woman? What are her credentials? Her credentials are given in 36 and 37. Anna is a prophetess. Verse 36. She's a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She's Jewish. She's, she's a true Israelite. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. People back then, they they married around 13 or 14, and so she married at that age. Presumably, seven years later, her husband dies, and now she's a widow at, at, to the age of 84, verse 37. So that's, what, 64 years, a widow. And during that time, what did she do? Did she give up? Did she live a life of sin, rebellion? Did she say, forget you, God? No, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers, she's an authentic representative of Israel. She can validate Jesus for us. Look at the ideal widow, 1 Timothy 5, 5. Listen to this. Now she who was a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in petitions and, and prayers night and day. This woman is that woman. And so as soon as the baby is presented to, presented to Simeon, she comes up, verse 38. And she began giving thanks to God. And she was telling everyone there, there was, hey, this one will redeem Israel. She's been waiting for Jesus all her life, just like Simeon. And she speaks to those. Who does she speak to? Verse 38, all those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. He's only speaking to the people who are waiting for Christ. Just them. The one you've been waiting for. He's here. The best day of her life. God didn't give this widow, Ado, a, widow Anna a husband, a family. He gave her something so much better. He gave her Jesus Christ. If Christmas Day reminds you of Jesus the most... It should be the happiest day of the year for you because in Jesus you have everything in the world that could, the world can never give you. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a relationship with the Lord, a spiritual family called the church, justification, a new heart, the Holy Spirit, 
all these spiritual realities found in Christ should matter to you. It should make a difference in your life. And so, brothers and sisters, when I tell myself this too, I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting up there. When we get older, we don't have to desperately hold on to the past. We don't have to go crazy with this diet and exercise, although some of that, some of that is not a bad thing to do. You don't have to spend all your days daydreaming about the good old days. You don't have to wish you could go back and do it all over again. No, the most important thing on Christmas Day when you're too tired, when you're, when you're too sick to do anything, when all you can do is lie on your bed, the best thing to do is hold Jesus tightly in your arms with a kind of faith and hope you never had when you were younger. With a kind of hope strengthened by the hope of an old man and an old widow in Luke chapter 2. It's that kind of faith, it's that kind of hope in baby Jesus that can make Christmas in your very last days the very happiest days of your life. Simeon and Anna, they're a microcosm of all those who wait for Jesus too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a what a what a great goal to have for us. To be like Simeon, to be like Anna in our old age waiting and waiting. Having a joy not caught up in in the world. Having a joy wrapped in a baby boy. And so, Lord, we pray that that hope and joy wouldn't start when it's too late. It would be already active now. If it's not active now, that it would start today. And so we thank you for this baby Jesus, the one in whom we have all things. May he always be our greatest Christmas present from now until the day we meet him face to face, we pray in Jesus' name.